This is what the Lord showed me, a basket of summer fruit. And God said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. Songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day says the Lord God. The dead bodies shall be many, cast out in every place. Be silent. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone who mourn and everyone mourn who lives in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Egypt. On that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. The time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine upon the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking for the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of the Lord. On May 15th, 1976, Mark Fidrich made his first major league start for the Detroit Tigers against the Cleveland Indians. He had a no-hitter in that game through six innings, and he finished with a two-hit complete game win, two to one. But that was only the beginning of what proved to be one of the most exciting and historic rookie seasons in Major League history. He finished the year 19 and nine with 24 complete games and back-to-back 11-inning -back complete game victories. He won Rookie of the Year, started the All-Star game for the American League, but beyond his baseball prowess, Mark the Bird Fidrich was a national phenomenon because he was just so weird. Well, at least quirky, 
right? I mean, he would talk to the ball while he was on the mound. He'd walk circles around the mound after every out. He patted down the mound, and he refused to let the grounds crew work on it after the sixth inning. Now, 1976 was the year of the nation's bicentennial celebration. Watergate and the pardon of Richard Nixon were still fresh on everybody's mind. 1976 marked the presidential campaign season between Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. In that year, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak formed Apple Computer Company. Also, it, it was the summer of the Montreal Olympics, where we were introduced to athletes who would eventually transcend sport and become touchstones of American culture. Names like Nadia Comaneci, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, the whole summer was pretty well filled with images of larger-than-life people, but it would have been difficult to be larger than Mark the Bird Fidrich in the summer of 1976. But, turns out, 1976 was the high-water mark for the bird. It was after spring training uh, injury, uh, heading into the 1977 season, Mark Fidrich eventually recovered and he picked right up where he'd left off. He went six and two and headed toward another outstanding season. But on July 4th of that year, he was removed from a game against the Baltimore Orioles after pitching five and two thirds inning with a dead arm. He was never again the same, dropping out of baseball entirely after only five seasons. It wasn't until 1985 that he was diagnosed with a torn rotator cuff. But I mean, can you imagine that, right? One minute you're on top of the world and the next minute you got a dead arm and nobody can figure out why you're not any good anymore. I've often wondered how Mark Fidrich dealt with that mysterious decline. I mean, I know he had to have been bewildered frustrated, depressed. Who, who wouldn't be? I mean, it, must have, it must have felt like that moment on the roller coaster where you're, you're, you're climbing and climbing because of the, the, the curvature of the tracks. You, you can't really see the top. And it feels like you're just going to climb forever until like, seemingly out of nowhere the tracks change direction and you're hurtling downhill at breakneck speeds having realized that you left your stomach somewhere back up at the summit, right? Well, we're all kind of morbidly fascinated by these riches to rags stories, aren't we? I mean, they're, they are fascinating. I, I, admittedly, I won't go to a movie if I know that that's a storyline. I mean, who needs that kind of depressing stuff in their life anyway? But it's Sunday morning, and you're welcome for that. Still, though, I mean, it's hard not to imagine yourself reaching the top only to find out that there's nothing in front of you but pain and humiliation, right? Failure. Like, like George Costanza on Seinfeld talking about how he didn't want to win the lottery because he was convinced that the universe was rigged against him. And if he won, he was convinced the universe would balance out his good luck by giving him cancer or some other horrible malady. Do you, ever, do you ever wonder whether people in that situation have any inkling that what looks like a great world right now is fixing to turn 
exceedingly grim very soon. Or as Warden Norton in the Shawshank Redemption had cross-stitched on his wall covering the private safe with the records of his embezzlement, his judgment cometh, soon, uh, cometh and that right soon. <laughs> that, my friends, is about where we are as we pick up the prophet Amos. Now, Amos has the fourth of our four prophetic visions in the passage for this morning. He's had four of them. This is the fourth. Last week, it was the plumb line. But this week, Amos sees a basket of summer fruit. What does that even mean, right? Summer fruit. What, what, what is that? Well, the Hebrew here is a word play from ket, which means ripe. In other words, God shows Amos a cornucopia of ripe fruit, fruit at its peak. Mm. But what happens to ripe fruit? Well, it spoils, right? You get a carton of strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, a bushel of peaches. You get them home from the store and take a bite. It's perfect. But then you realize that this fruit is right now at its peak. Like, it's not ever going to get better than it is right now. Everything from here on out is downhill. And pretty soon, you no longer have a basket of ripe summer fruit. you got a basket of stinking rot, right? And God says, Amos, what do you see? And Amos says, well, a basket of ripe summer fruit. And God says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never pass this way again. So here's where the wordplay comes in. Ket, the word for ripe fruit, is the same root as the beginning of God's condemnation. The NRSV tra translates it the second time as the end of Israel, but it's the same word to describe the fruit. In other words, God says Israel is ripe. Things look great right now, but like summer fruit, Israel has peaked. It's not ever going to be better than it is right now. Everything from here on out is downhill. And just like Mark Fidrich, just like the roller coaster cresting the summit, he's going to, they're going downhill at lightning speed. His judgment cometh, and that right soon. Now, what, you may be asking, is Amos so exasperated about? Or, more to the point, why is God apparently so ticked off? Well, there's not really a whole lot of mystery here. It's pretty straightforward. Things start getting interesting when Amos says, Hear this, you that trample the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land. <laughs> well, that, that seems pretty clear. God's angry because the people who otherwise have the means are scamming the impoverished. Well, how? Well, according to Amos, they're putting a thumb on the scales, making people pay more for less food. There's no ancient Near Eastern FDA keeping an eye peeled so the folks in charge don't take advantage of everybody else. And additionally, there are business owners running pawn shops with people's only pair of sandals. When the poor can't pay back the minor pledge, they're swiping the shoes right off their feet. 
the blankets that they sleep with, they're pawning them. The things that keep them warm at night. And there's no ancient Near Eastern OSHA making sure that the laborers aren't being taken advantage of. They're selling the sweepings of wheat. I mean, you get that, right? When I was in, when I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's. I was not a very good McDonald's employee. Um, I was kind of a lethargic mouth breather. So when the lunch rush came around, they often said, uh, Derek, why don't you go out in the lobby and clean up? So I walked around with a broom and a dustpan, and I swept up the food that people dropped on the floor, mashed french fries and hamburgers, ketchup side down. Swept all that stuff up that we get after two-year-olds, put it in their mouths, and then spit it on the floor. Now, you can, Im can you imagine if part of McDonald's corporate business plan was for me to bring that dustpan back behind the counter and start putting that food back in the bins, bins to be resold? Now, look, some of you may be convinced that they already do that, but <laughs> I've worked there. I know they don't do that. As far as you know. Now, in philosophical and economic discussions about justice, there's a special focus on procedural justice or commutative justice, which is that justice that ensures everybody is playing on a level playing field, right? Weights and measures must be the same for everybody. No putting your thumb on the scales, the system has to treat everyone equally, regardless of race, creed, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, etc. Now, the argument is by some economists that if everybody starts out knowing the rules, and if the rules are the same, exact same for everybody, then whatever the system produces will be by definition just, right? The whole system can be said to be just, just as long as basic justice exists. Now, of course, what this fails to take into account is that we may well be running a race where the distance is the same, the starting line and the finish line are the same, but that some people, because of their race, creed, gender, etc., aren't actually running the same race. So, Think of it this way. Suppose you have to wear a 50-pound backpack because of your immigration status, your poverty level, or your disability. In that case, even though the, you line up at the state, same starting line and you finish at the same finish line, you're definitely not running the same race as everybody else, right? If I have three children and two of them have no health problems, but the third one has juvenile diabetes, Procedural justice says only that my responsibility is to give them all equal portions of the same food. But if I feed them all Snickers bars for breakfast, I'm not really treating them justly, am I? Just because I, they all get the same food. Because the just thing to do in that situation is to make allowances so that everybody's health is treated with the same dignity and respect, regardless of their needs. See, procedural justice isn't enough to produce just outcomes. 
True justice takes everything into account. Not to ensure that there are equal outcomes, because, pro tip, there are never going to be entirely equal outcomes, but to ensure that everyone's treated equitably, which is to say, everyone gets treated according to what they need. Now, this would be easy to sit through, this whole thing that Amos pours out on the nation of Israel, if all he did was sort of single out a few Scrooge McDucks and make an example of them, right? Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and the other fancy pants boys down at the Yacht Club. I mean, they're easy targets. Management, right? The, 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 tie, the ties and suits down at corporate. It's effortless to feel morally superior to people we're pretty sure are building empires on the backs of the powerless and the poor. But unfortunately, Amos has even bigger game in sight than Mortimer and Randolph and their pals at the commodities exchange. Amos isn't letting average folks off the hook either. He's talking about everybody. See, it'd be nice to pin all the blame on the masters of the universe types, but Amos is raining down fire on the whole nation, everybody. Now, why is that? Well, because the crimes against the powerless that Amos lays out aren't just a few rotten apples. The crimes Amos names are institutionalized. They are a part of the structure, the fabric of society. You know, they're just the way things are. In other words, there are good moral folks who know what's going on, those who see the injustice being perpetrated on the helpless, aware of the labor being stolen from the voiceless, and yet they remain silent. See, the big crime isn't just that greedy people are cheating the poor, that's nothing new, but that everybody in Israel is apparently aware of it, and they ought to know better. But they stand by and let it happen anyway. God's putting all of Israel on notice. <laughs> It'd be nice to avoid blame by saying, well, you know, it's just those gray, those shady grain sellers, those, those dang pawn shop brokers, those lousy chaff vendors. Unfortunately, that kind of abuse requires, if not the explicit endorsement, then the de facto approval of the community an endorsement that comes as a result of indifference. People just don't care. In other words, Amos calls out the whole country for turning its back on the people who live and work at the mercy of the powerful. But the, 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 the situation that Amos points up, it, it sounds so contemporary, doesn't it? I mean, there's a whole world out there that just gets by people struggling to make sure there's food on the table and that both grandma and the baby get the medicine they need. I mean, people who are afraid for their jobs and their livelihoods, fearful that someone in a tie can come along and take from them what has already been bargained for, their time, their expertise, their pensions and benefits, their labor. People for whom the system not only doesn't work, it actively disadvantages them every day, putting a thumb on the scales of justice fixing the game in ways that <coughs> guarantee that they can't win, amplifying the voices of religious bigots who use 
God as a club to beat people down. So, so here's my question. What do, what do we do about those people? The people who get lost. More telling, in fact, how is it that we live in a world created by a loving God in which we can even say with a straight face, those people? I mean, how do we help to realize a world in which the institutions normally run by the powerful will not trample the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land, as Amos points out? How, how do we hold ourselves accountable to a vision of a world that no longer allows the rich to buy laborers for silver and workers for a pair of sandals? How, how do we ensure a world that refuses to allow the powerful to take advantage of the powerless? Well. One of the ways that has proven effective over the years at looking out for the interests of those who work for a living is well, you know, labor unions, right? I mean, those collectives that bring together many small voices to speak with one loud voice that cannot be ignored, a voice that speaks up on behalf of all those who would otherwise be left to their own devices, always in danger of being trampled. See, we need to help make a culture in which people are in power are no longer more afraid of being ashamed of being racist, uh, misogynist, homophobic, ableist, transphobic. They're more afraid of being called racist, misogynist, homophobic, ableist, transphobic. I was asked one time to speak uh, to a labor union a couple years back about this whole idea of labor and, and to do it from kind of a religious perspective and why it is that religious people might think uh, how we treat laborers and the work of their hands, uh, why we might think that's a moral and not just a partisan political issue. And I have one word for you, one word for them. Amos. In the world God is creating, deluding ourselves that everything is fair because everybody agrees to the rules going in, that just doesn't cut it. It's not enough. Because the truth of the matter is most people never got the chance to agree to the rules in the first place. They were just thrown in and told with a wink and a nod that everything was fair. When anybody with a lick of sense can see that the system is already rigged in favor of the folks in charge. Now, according to Amos, you can help to make a world where some eat and some do not, where some are welcome and others are rejected, a world where might and power trump decency and fairness, where the big shots always win and everybody else is left to fight over the scraps. You can do that. You can create that world, but let's don't kid ourselves that that world has anything to do with God. Because God's holding out for a different world, a better one, and we're part of it. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes 
retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.